Searching for a job is stressful. It's emotional. It's vulnerable. And it's oftentimes a bit of a guessing game, at least up front. When you are applying to most jobs, you have no idea what that comp range is. And you are left to assume that it might be aligned with what your expectations are, uh, or do a dance with a recruiter to figure out how aligned those things may or may not be. There is another way. In today's episode, I'm gonna be joined by Basecamp founder and CEO, Jason Freed, and we're gonna talk about their approach and why they started including compensation in their job descriptions in a variety of other topics around 21st Century HR. So more than that, after a brief word from our sponsor. 21st Century HR is a podcast exploring how to build better businesses through modern people practices and approaches. It's brought to you by my firm, Amplify. Amplify provides HR executive search and strategic consulting services that help companies build better organizations. From employer brand development and execution to global talent strategies, Amplify develops custom solutions that help clients from Hootsuite to SpaceX optimize their recruiting capabilities. Amplify also hosts a new community for HR leaders called the Ecosystem. The Ecosystem was designed to bring modern HR leaders around the world together to share ideas, inspiration, and support. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Hey everyone, welcome to 21st Century HR Podcast. I am your host, Lars Schmidt, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Jason Freed. Jason is the founder and CEO of Basecamp, and we're going to be talking about a couple areas of how they approach HR and recruiting and specifically some questions around compensation. But Jason, before we dig in, why don't you just take a minute and introduce yourself to the listeners? Hey, well, my name is Jason Freed, and I'm the co-founder and CEO over at Basecamp. We've been doing this, uh, been in business for about 20 years. Written a bunch of books, made a bunch of products, but right now we're pretty much entirely focused on Basecamp, the product and the company. Uh, and that's um, what we use to run our business every day and how we manage all of our projects. And many of our customers do as well. Cool. So Jason, you and I first got connected. Uh, I was having some uh, Twitter thread and some conversations with folks about including compensation in job postings. And uh, you and obviously Basecamp came up as a company that's been doing that for some time. And so I want to I wanna kind of start there. What, what led you to the decision to include comp ranges in your job postings? Um, because you have to talk about them anyway. <laughs> and it's better to, um, one, you know, something we've noticed in the past is we go down the road with a candidate and then, you know, you get towards the end, you really like them. And then we get to comp and things don't work out. And it seems like such a waste of time for everybody. I, I don't think there's any reason to um, obscure it, hide it, stall on it, whatever. I think it's best just to put it out there and say, this is the position. This is how much we pay. Uh, and therefore, there's no questions. We don't waste anybody's time. And if, if you wanted more, this isn't the job for you. If you would have taken less, this is even better job for you. Everybody knows everything. Us, them. There's no asymmetry there. It's It just feels right. Yeah, and so when did you start doing that? Um, I think it was a few years ago. It was tied to revamping the way we pay people at Basecamp anyway. So before we made this change, and maybe it was four or five years ago. I, I can't quite remember, to be honest. Uh, everything's a blur, like past a year or two for me. <laughs> right. But um, uh, we used to you know, pay people basically what they'd would be negotiating. So like most, most companies, 
they, um, you know, not only do you have to be good at your job, but you have to be an ace negotiator to get paid a fair wage. And that just doesn't feel right to us. But that's what we used to do too. It's like, you know, here's your job and let's, you know, have our review and maybe I'm, I'm having a good day and you're having a good day and we pay you more and maybe we don't. I mean, it was just kind of this, this thing. And the problem is, is that different people in the, in diff, in the company who are doing the exact same job were paid different amounts. And that just seemed unfair as well. So we decided to standardize all of our salaries and make sure that everybody in a specific position, in a specific role, at a specific tier, level of experience, got paid the exact same. And once we did that, we decided we might as well put those in our job posting as well. Because when you're coming in at this position, at this role, uh, at this tier of, of skill, this is what you're going to get paid. And everyone else at that level is going to get paid the exact same. So there's no reason to hide anymore and there's no reason to obscure it anymore. Yeah, so when you first rolled that out, what was the response from candidates? You know, as you as you started recruiting, kind of with the comp uh, included up front, what uh, how did that kind of impact the the response rates from candidates? Well, it's interesting because the people who um, uh, a lot of people appreciate it first of all because they're not used to it and they just like to know where they stand and it helps them decide if it's worth their while or not. And there's some people on the internet specifically who, who have a big problem with it saying um, you're underpaying this position or whatever, or other people are saying you're overpaying, you could get people a lot less and everyone has their opinions, but the only opinions I care about are the people who apply for the job. And um, we're fair, they're fair, everyone knows where everybody stands. And I think on balance, it's, it's, it's been a huge improvement, a huge improvement and a big boon, in fact, because a lot of people talk about it, like we're having a discussion about it which of course brings more attention to us and hopefully helps us find even better candidates because we're, you know, the, the pool is, is larger. And also it just undermine or under, not undermines, underlines <laughs> the, the fact that we're trying to be as honest as we possibly can about like this position and, and the role, because, you know, it's funny to me how companies who are about to hire somebody and work with them, start off the relationship by hiding things from them. It just doesn't make sense. We, we want you to be a coworker. We want you to be a teammate. Why would we ever want to start that relationship in a weird place? Why would we ever want to try, ha- try to have leverage over you or have more information than you do about the role? Um, so what we do is we end up finding people who really appreciate the honesty and really appreciate the position and feel like the, the salary is fair for them. Maybe it's a huge jump up. Maybe it's a jump down for some. It, it all depends. It depends what people are looking for, but at least they know where they stand. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point around leverage because I think when you when you hear people that are kind of detractors to this approach, it, they they kind of counter with this idea that you can be coy around the compensation, the conversation, and hold that back, and maybe get somebody to value below what they you know what what their market is or what they're actually worth. And I think that it it's such backwards thinking when you think about how recruiting should operate and how you're you're setting a tone for the relationship with this person that might be your colleague. Uh, if they come in, you know, wh- why do you think it is that so many companies still struggle with that mindset, and they're kind of they, they have a legacy approach towards compensation discussions? I think it's a number of things. It's momentum. It's sort of the way they were brought up. Like perhaps whoever's the manager now, they had to fight for their salary when they were coming up, and so why should someone else have it easier than I did? That kind of thing. There's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, and I also think just it's just the way it's pretty much done everywhere for the most part. So people just keep continuing the trend. It doesn't mean it's right, though. It's just what people tend to do. And yet the leverage thing has always struck me as odd because 
you know, the last thing I want to do with someone new who we're hiring is, is start the relationship out again by feeling like I have leverage over them, that I got more than I should have. And we, we, you know, we, we, we got them for more than we had to like all that. Like, why would you ever want to feel that way? It just seems like a strange thing to feel like you've got a deal on somebody right. or whatever. It's just, I don't know. It's just, it's kind of ugly to me. So, but you know, Hey, it's how most people do it. It's how a lot of HR departments do it. It's just how it's been done. So a lot of people continue it. And I don't think, you know, in most cases, I don't think a lot of companies reconsider how they work in a variety of different ways, especially around hiring. Cause Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it, is broke. Yeah. It's just that they don't necessarily realize that it's broken. And so they just keep going. Well, I think you touched on a, an interesting point that I think is one of the biggest obstacles for, for HR and recruiting is there's so much legacy thinking and so much uh, people that are kind of comfortable with how things have been done without necessarily questioning if that's the right way to do things. And so I think for, you know, when I come across examples like this, where companies are taking a different approach, it always gets my interest. And, and I think that that uh, as you know, more uh, conversations like this happen and kind of stories happen around the, the impact of taking a different approach that maybe uh, defies conventional wisdom, but is, is a much more, uh, not just human way to look at, at the field, but, uh, but productive way um, from an output standpoint, I think maybe more people can start to start to follow that lead. You know, I, I think when you, when you look at the conversation around comp transparency, I think one of the other uh, areas that, people that are detractors to the idea tend to touch on is, is this idea of internal backlash, right? If we're, if you're open about compensation and your internal teams know what other departments are making, that, that that's going to create friction. And I'm curious for you, you know, especially since you, you kind of went through that internal leveling process before you then kind of took that externally to your job postings as well. What was the response internally? Like as people started to have more more clarity um, and visibility into overall tiers and comp structures across the company. Yeah, it it was for the most part good, but some people were nervous about it. Uh, some people didn't like it. Um, some people didn't think it was fair. Um, but for the most part, most people felt like it was it was fair and on uh, and above board and, and and appreciated. But yeah, there's always people who have a, who who have challenges with it. And I understand where they're coming from, by the way. I don't think that they're wrong or anything like that. I, I understand, you know, money is one of those really delicate subjects and who makes more than someone else. And why is my role, you know, paid less than this role? I feel like I contribute just as much. Like I totally get that. I completely get that. Um, but, you know, there's just some market realities too that, that are, are true, um, which is that, Certain jobs have uh, attract higher skilled workers, people with higher levels of degrees or high levels of experience. The market will pay those people more because there's fewer of them. Only certain people can do certain jobs. Like in other jobs, are more accessible to more kinds of people across the spectrum of skills and experience. So it, there's just some market realities, and you just have to kind of explain that. And and you also still have to understand that you can't try to change someone's mind about these things. This right. is just you know you make your point, you 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 make your case. And you explain the decision, and and that's that. Um, and the other thing we've done though recently, kind of tied to this in a sense, but also because it felt right, <clears throat> is we um, we we set a new minimum salary at Basecamp, which is something we never had before. We would so we by the way we based our salaries off of industry uh, data. So we use a, a company called Radford. Um, and a few others to triangulate, like basically, what are the industry, uh, what's the industry paying? We try to pay within the top ten percent of San Francisco rates, 
which are basically the highest rates in the country and almost the world, um, even though we have nobody who lives in San Francisco. So it doesn't matter where you live and where you work for base camp. You can live in Tennessee on a farm. You can live in, in, in uh, you know, any country of the world, anywhere you want to live. Um, and you're still going to be paid the same amount. Now, what we noticed, though, was, of course, that certain jobs, like specifically customer service, the salaries in customer service are typically much lower than, than for example, a programmer. And I think people understand that. But we weren't thrilled with the gap. Um, so what we did was we raised, we set a minimum salary, which is we, and we've now published this publicly, we will never pay anybody less than $70,000 a year. And that might go up. I don't think it'll go down, but that, that'll go up with inflation or whatever, perhaps. Um, but $70,000 is the minimum salary we'll pay anybody. Um, so even if we could quote, get you to work for us for 52,000, cause that's what everyone else in the industry pays. No, you're going to get 70. And that helped to even out or not even the playing field. Cause it doesn't do that, but it does reduce the gap a bit, which helps, uh, which helps people feel a little bit more comfortable about the gap because they know there is a gap obviously. Um, but just feeling like 70, we, we, we feel like 70 is a really, really fair number. Uh, and, um, and so that's what we do now. We just started doing that last year and we published that. So that helps. It still, it helps. It doesn't solve all the problems for everybody. Some people who, who still don't like the idea of certain salaries being different than others. But, you know, the reality is that this, this is, I think, the market and this is what we do. And then we're kind of making an artificial market by raising the lowest end to 70. Right. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, both of those approaches in terms of basing your, uh, your market rates on the top 10% of San Francisco and then obviously having the, the floor and compensation that coupled with a, a workforce that can work anywhere creates some real uh, advantages for you on the hiring front, I would imagine, because uh, people people can take that and they can they can match that to a lifestyle that doesn't have to be in the valley where they're spending you know, fourteen hundred dollars on a bunk bed, uh, right? To 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 be able to live. I mean, totally. you can't you can't live on a hundred k salary if you're if that's if that's what you're you're measuring things at. No. Um, I'm curious for you, you know, if there's a, if there's executive listening to this that is is considering, maybe they're on the fence um, about including compensation in job descriptions, what advice would you have for them kind of based on your experience as to why you think that they should make this move? Well, um, I mean, the, I think they should because it's fair and it has to be discussed anyway. And what, again, like what, what, what's the reason not to? Now, might be because other people you don't want other people internally to know what some people are paid. I understand that, okay. But that like isn't disqualification. It's more like okay, that's a concern. So let's line up the pros and the cons and the costs and the benefits. And you know, at the end of the day, like you'll have to convince yourself. I, I can't convince you, nor do I want to convince you. I'm just putting <laughs> right. out information. But I think um, my my sense is just just try it on the next job posting. You know, we don't hire very often at base camp, so um, you know, for us. We can't experiment quite as much because we can't, we don't hire very often, but at a company, let's say of a few hundred that hires, you know, 20 people a year or, or more or whatever, just make the next posting, like put a salary in there and see what happens. Like there's no other way to find out than just to try it um, and, and to explain why you're doing it. And you take the good with the bad and hopefully there's more good. And in, in, in some cases, maybe there's more bad and then you go, let's not do that again, you know, but I just don't, I don't see, I mean, I do understand why people would think there's a downside, but realistically, I don't think there is. I think it's like, for example, um, what you pay someone is just as important as how you, well you describe the job itself. 
Um, you wouldn't say I'm not going to describe the job very well because some other people might not like the description of it. You know, you say, no, I'm going to provide the best possible description I can. So people who are applying for this job know if it's for them or not. And part of that is how much are we going to pay you? I mean, everyone knows you get a salary when you work somewhere. Like, why is this some big fancy secret? And why does it have to be awkward? And why, why are you putting the relationship in an awkward position the first time you try to hire someone to start this negotiation dance? It's like, look, this is what we pay. And let's make it easy on everybody. So I think it's worth it. Everyone also have to come to their own conclusions, but I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard for me to see why you wouldn't try it at least, at least once. Right. Well, I think, I mean, you raise a great point on just being able to pilot it. If you're, if you're hesitant to go all in, you know, pilot it, take a job and, and see what happens. And, and I think that, you know, companies that are, are willing to do that and maybe go against conventional thinking as it relates to job postings, um, I think they're going to see an impact. And as I, you know, was working on the fast company story that we'd discussed, uh, you know, the few companies that I had talked to had seen a positive impact and it makes sense. I mean, recruiter and, and also it's a more efficient way to recruit because when you think about it, if a, if a recruiter is spending a lot of time and a candidate is spending a lot of time applying to jobs that if they just had clarity up front around what that comp range is, they can self-identify how they align with that or not. But if you're not providing that data for them to make the call on, they're basing it purely on, you know, the company and the job and the location. And those are all important factors, but uh, it's missing a pretty big, um, you know, factor as well when you're, when you're considering the, the job and, and the, you know, the career move altogether. Yeah. And also one of the things is just, it's, it's respectful. Yeah. I think it's respectful to not waste anybody's time. Absolutely. And I, I've, I've wasted people's time in the past by accident, which is why not including salary and you get pretty far down the road and then you realize it's just not going to be a fit. And I mean, what a terrible thing to do to yourself and to someone else to like, you know, almost, you know, almost make this happen. And then, oops, like the biggest reason it can't happen, you know, we save that for the end. Like that's just the wrong order. Yeah. And I think that it's also, I mean, look, let's face it with job searching. It's a, it's a vulnerable position to be in, to be looking for a job. It's one of the bigger decisions you, you make in your lifetime. And so if you're, uh, whatever you can do to try to, to to ease some of that on the candidate side is is I think the right thing to do, and I think uh, you know you can you can you can kind of align it with the, the the human aspect of it, and that it's the right thing to do, and or the business product, like whatever is going to get you there. I I, I think you could find uh, certainly reasons to take that approach on both sides. Um, let's talk a little bit about your recruiting because I know that uh, you don't do a ton of recruiting, but this year you've gone through uh, a growth spurt. You you know I, I you, know, you shared that you would had four or five open positions um, this year and received 4,000 applications, which as a recruiter kind of makes my, my head spin a little bit. You know, what did that interview process look like with, you know, that level of volume and your hiring process itself is also fairly involved. This isn't just to send us your resume thing. You're, you're having people kind of describe the, why they're interested and, and how some of their experience aligns. So what, what is that, what does that kind of a process actually look like from the inside? Well, so the way it works is um, we write up a job description. A lot of people work on that job description. Primarily, it's written by one person, and then it's vetted by a few people internally, and we make sure that the description's accurate and clear and the whole thing. And and uh, and, and um, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll brag here. I think our job descriptions are the best in the world. Like I, We put a lot of work into them. They're very accurate. Um, they tell the real story about what the job is and show example things that you do on a daily basis. They're really, really good. And, and we feel like they should be because we're asking someone to 
work for us, which means like they can't work for anybody else. They have to say no to a, a billion jobs to work for us. <laughs> right. Um, so we at least owe them clarity there. So um, we do that. We put it out there. We use a, a product called Workable to track the incoming uh, applicants. Um, and we always ask in, in our cover letters, we always ask a series of, or not in our cover letters, in our, in our job ads, we ask a series of questions that we want to be um, answered. And we um, begin almost every position or reviewing positions by reading the cover letter. There's some cases when we don't, but almost every other thing is, is we read the cover letter first. And from the cover letter, you can tell pretty quickly whether or not somebody wants this job, whether or not somebody, somebody wants just a job, or whether someone is completely disqualified from the job. Um, some people don't send cover letters, they're out. Some people send cover letters that clearly are just so generic that they just blasted you know 100 places with them. And then some people write really thoughtful cover letters uh, and answer the questions we ask and tell, tell uh, us about them. And, and they're wonderfully written. And we always hire, try to hire great writers. So that's like, no matter what job you're applying for at Basecamp, you have to be a great writer. Uh, so the cover letter is sort of the first filter there. Then we look at the resume. Um, and uh, typically what happens is, is that there's, there's between two or three people, usually sometimes more, but try not to keep, maybe sometimes four, actually, I should say probably not more than that, um, who review every application and give it a thumbs up or thumbs down or DQ or whatever. Um, and then we kind of start to narrow it down. So for example, the head of marketing position, which we were hiring for now, we got about 1400 applications. Um, we were able to disqualify, I think it was close to 500 or something right off the bat because they just weren't clearly weren't qualified or didn't follow basic directions. Then you read through the rest, which is still 900. It's a lot of reading. Uh, it's a lot of thinking. Um, and you begin to see patterns form and you begin to see some people stand out and it becomes pretty obvious. You can get down to a few hundred. You get down to a few hundred, you keep, you discuss uh, with the other people you're looking at the applications with. Like what, let's remind ourselves, what are we really looking for here? What do we really want in a person? And once that becomes clearer again, you kind of re review that. You can start to narrow it down even further and further and further until you get to about anywhere from 10 to 20 typically. And those are kind of your first round finalists, um, which then go to a phone screen. So, uh, or, or phone call better is a better way to put it. Um, where one person, typically Andrea, who runs people ops here, she'll, she'll call each person for an hour and just have a conversation. From that point, it's pretty clear who, let's say the top five to 10 are. Um, and I know I'm jumping over a lot of details like, well, how do you know? And it's kind of hard to explain. You just, sure. you know. Uh, through the conversation and whatever. Uh, are this person engaging? Is this person somebody you want to work with? Are you excited to talk to them again? Like all this kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, we get down to about five or six or seven or something like that. And then a few other people join the phone calls. And we maybe go through two more rounds of phone calls and probably narrow it down to like three, maybe two people. And then typically me and David, so David's the um, my business partner here, um, will get involved right at the end, unless it's a role that we're hired. Like I'm intimately involved in the head of marketing position. So I've reviewed all 1400 applications. So I'm already involved here, but at the end we'll probably pull, bring David in to have a final conversation with the last two or three and we'll kind of deliberate and then decide who, who we think um, gets the offer. So I know I'm jumping over a million things, but like that's kind of the process. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's worked out pretty well for us. It's, it's very time int intensive. 
There's no, we have no automation um, aside from like workable tracking the right. applicants, but there's no like nothing going through keyword searching or any of that stuff. It's a hundred percent human stuff, human interactions, reading two eyes, talking, discussing, making decisions, and then having phone calls and having phone calls and having phone calls. And then finally, like after about three rounds, we, we know one thing we don't want to do is put people through like seven or eight rounds of interviews. It's just, it's taxing and exhausting. So we feel like after three rounds with a few different people, it's, it's pretty clear. And then we make a call. Cool. And that, uh, that makes sense. And that's, as I, I just, I saw those numbers and they just, uh, they, they stood out to me. So it's always interesting to see like, how, how the world do you actually process that volume? So we actually, in, we actually just did a, um, a podcast on this. Um, so if you go to rework.fm, which is where our podcast is hosted, um, a few episodes ago, I'll have to get you the name. Maybe you put it in the show notes. We talked in depth about this process as well, like for half hour versus like, you know, a few minutes. So if you're really curious, like want to go deep, 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 um, that'd be a good episode to listen to. Yeah, no, I will definitely get that link and embed that in the show notes. So uh, listeners can check that out because that's... Uh... That uh, it's it's not a fair question for you to give a deep answer to in the course of a, a thirty minute podcast. Right. So I'd love to hear you spend thirty minutes uh, just on that. Sure. You know, one of the uh, I, I distinctly remember this when uh, when I first got connected with you. I remember reading something that you wrote uh, a couple of years back, and it was around this. Uh, you know, one one of the phrases that just uh, is my my nemesis in recruiting because it's the zombie phrase that we just can't possibly uh, kill is this notion notion of the war for talent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I loathe that statement, uh, but I've been recruiting for 20 years and it's been around pretty much that entire time. And I don't think it's going anywhere, but, but you had a, a different approach where you, you kind of talked about taking more of a pacifist approach to the war on talent and, and really kind of sharing a view that, that nurturing untapped potential is far more exhilarating than, you know, finding somebody who's already peaked. And I'm curious, you know, why do you think tech companies, particularly in the Valley are, are so fixated on talent that comes from name brand companies? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a number of things that are not, that are, let's say, unrelated, but I'll just run through a few. I think a lot of people believe in magic, and there's really no magic here. They think that if someone worked at, you know, Apple, then they're going to make you as successful as Apple if they come, that they have the secret, that they know the way. It's like, no, no. These companies, all these companies, every company is a series of people and decisions and complicated reasons for doing what they do. It's not a person that makes or breaks these things. Um, even really highly famous people, they could, they, you know, they could go from one job into another if the environment's wrong or whatever. It's not going to work. Like it has nothing to do with with what people think, right? So, um, so I think, but I think there's people think there's magic and there's fairy dust and it'll rub off on you, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think that that's true. First of all, um, another thing is I think that people feel like, well, you can't go wrong if you hire someone who has experience in one of these, you know, big time unicorn companies and like, you know, gosh, if we get someone wrong, well, it wasn't our fault because we hired like the best people and it just didn't work out. There's some of that. Um, and I think there's also a lot of insecurity actually, which is that, um, people think that if someone's not famous or at the top of their career right now that they, they, they're not any good yet. And like, why should we take a chance on them? Like, let's just get the best people in the world. Everyone's like, we want to hire the best in the world. It's like, it's just kind of silly. I mean, there are the best people are everywhere and there's many, many, many best people. The, The fact that they happen to be at four different companies or five companies, it's like, no, probably not. They're, they're all over the place. Um, 
And also the other problem I have with it, frankly, is that like these these people, let's call them the the superstars of the industry or whatever, they're in extremely high demand. And like there's a pretty good chance they're already looking for another job once they've come on your on board, or they're gonna get incredible offers from other companies. It's just hard to keep people like that around anyway. So like why why battle? Why battle with anyone? Why not go find someone who's really, really good at what they do, who's maybe stuck in a place where they can't excel, or maybe they have excelled, but that particular place is sort of just maybe time for them to move on. There's nothing wrong with that other company. It's just time for them to move on and move up in their career or whatever. And find those people who will be, uh, I think, uh, more um, excited to be to working in a, to be at your company. Um, won't have the same kind of expectations of like what it was like at the other company in terms of uh, they they worshipped me and this whole thing and they didn't want to lose me. like all this stuff. It's just it's just not worth it. Um, so anyway, uh, but I think it's similar to like you know you see this. It's interesting you see this in professional sports a lot, although it's a little bit different. It's not there's not a parallel, but you'll see like coaches bounce around a league. Um, you know, a coach was great at this other place, and they'll come and and you'll you'll hire this coach, and the coach will just suck at your new on this new team and it's not really the coach it's like the environments are different right. and the, the personnel is different and maybe the coach wasn't as good as you thought because maybe something else was going on there our feeling generally is that it's the environment that matters way more than the individual people you of course want to have good people and people with good character and and people who are talented but you can throw the best person in the world in a crappy environment and they're going to be terrible too um so I don't think companies think enough about the environment and how much in- impact the environment has on the people they hire. And they just expect like the best people they can find to be amazing, but oftentimes they're not and they don't know why and they scratch their head. And it's like, well, you got to look at your environment. It's not a great place to work. So they don't do great work. Yeah. And let's, let's kind of continue down that environment, uh, you know, thread for a moment. I mean, there, there's such a loud chorus, uh, I think that fetishes this notion of like hustle and grind, especially in tech. While obviously we're talking about, you know, tech and competition for tech talent. You know, in your your last book, I know you've written, uh, I believe, two. Um, your last book was "It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work," and you presented a counter narrative to this kind of glorification of of grind culture. You know, why was it important for you to publish that that particular essay? Yeah, um, because I think grinding and hustling and all this stuff is is pretty harmful and dangerous. Um, the, the, the feeling that if I just work harder, like the problem is, is that I'm not working hard enough. That's the problem. Yeah. Gosh, I just need to grind harder and then I'll get it. There's a lot of people on this planet who work extremely hard, who never get ahead or never get out of that situation. It's, it's hard work is not the difference. I just don't believe that. I think luck plays a much greater role than hard work. Um, and I'm not suggesting like being lazy and, and not showing up for work and not caring. Of course, like you've got to put in the work, sure. always got to put in the work, but the grind and like, if I only, man, I worked 14 hours. If I only worked 16, it would have made all the difference. It just, it doesn't add up. And I think that that narrative is unhealthy and uh, unsustainable and not helpful. I think it's hurtful actually. Um, I understand in some cases People feel like they have to put in more and work harder in certain industries to get in. I, 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 there's some of that for sure. But this idea of like, you're not working hard enough and you got to grind and grind and grind until you get there. It's like, first of all, where is it there? Right. Uh, when are you going to know that you're there? Most people never, most people who do this, who hustle and grind the whole thing, they're still doing it when they're 40 and 50 and 60, <laughs> because that's the only thing they know. Right. And you can't do it when you're 40, 50 and 60. Like 
well, maybe when you're 40, you still can perhaps, but like when you're 50 and 60 years, you know, you're like at some point you just can't do that. Um, you're just going to burn out. So my feeling is that you're better off practicing sustainable work practices as early on as possible, not as late as possible because habits are hard to break and um, hustling and grinding, I think are primarily bad habits if they're sustained. I think course there's moments here and there a few times a year perhaps where you put in a little bit extra energy or a lot of extra energy for short periods of time for short bursts or something like okay i get that but this sustained hustle grind push it just it it doesn't add up to me and so anyway we wanted we wanted to push back on that hard uh because it's a big part of the crazy that we're trying to push back on in the book and uh, i think it's a fundamental part of it well i think you know to to kind of follow on your point so much of, of setting that tone really comes from the top, you know, comes from the CEO, it comes from executives. And I think, you know, there, there are some exceptions like, you know, Alexis Ohani and, and others that are, are, you know, high profile CEOs that are kind of pushing back this notion against, you know, hustle porn and grind culture and just all of the, the, the nonsense you read about, but, but not that many, you know, and, and I'm curious, like, is we, what is it going to take to start to shift that culture particularly when I think it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really be incumbent on the CEOs and the executives of the organization to set the tone of what's, what's expected from employees at organizations. I don't know why more don't push back. I think probably because a lot of them believe in it. They believe in the hustle and the grind and, and hey, you know, they, get to, they get to push 100 or 200 or 500 or 1,000 people really hard. There's a power crush in that. And, uh, you know... I think there's some, uh, well, not think, I know there's a lot of ego involved at the top in a lot of companies. Um, and it must feel good to them to push and hustle and grind. And also the, you know, the CEOs and the owners, they're under a lot of pressure, self-imposed pressure to perform perhaps for investors uh, that, you know, if the goal is growth at all costs and any cost and rapid growth and permanent growth and grow, 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 like, they're under a lot of pressure too to show numbers and they think that pushing people harder will get them those numbers and maybe it does here and there, but like you can't keep doing that. Um, so there, there's a number of, you know, we talked, I talked about the environment earlier in terms of the environment in, in the company, but there's also the in, industry's environment and the sort of the, the general genre and, and, you know, what's expected of companies that let's say raise outside money or have these lofty goals and, and, and the environment creates the animals in a sense, and it creates people who feel like they need to push other people really, really, really hard and, and the whole thing. So there's also a lot of, um, you know, salesmanship around, like if we just, you know, we're all family here and you do whatever you can for your family and all this kind of stuff. And it's really disingenuous. And I think uh, right. uh, unfair. Um, cause what they're asking for is, is self-sacrifice. They're not actually asking for like what a family, a family, uh, you know, the, good companies support families. They, they don't act like a fake one and, and encourage you to push, 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 or, or guilt you into not helping each other. So um, anyway, I think there's ego. I think there's power. I think there's expectations that are unreasonable. I think a lot of those things come to a head and then push people to push other people really hard. Last question for you, Jason. You, you know, we, we've talked about some of your kind of HR and recruiting practices within Basecamp. And I think a, a lot of them, certainly from my point of view, lean towards the progressive spectrum of HR. You know, as a CEO, what's your expectation of, of what HR should deliver for the business? It should be supportive of people. Um, 
I think, you know, it's about thinking about like for, you know, from our perspective, for example, let's say we get into the benefits discussion, the benefits should be benefits to people. That's what they're called. Um, a lot of companies, the benefits are to the benefit of the company. Like, for example, there's a lot of things that are masked, masked as benefits, but aren't really like, we'll do your dry cleaning for you, or we'll pick you up from work and drop you off at home, or, or we'll cook you dinner, free dinner if you stay at work. Well, Basically, what these benefits are, they benefit the company because they keep people at work longer. It's not really a benefit. I mean, yeah, you could say that both people benefit. Like, well, I get my dry cleaning done. I don't have to go to the dry cleaners. Yeah, I get that. But like, if, if you don't even have time to go to the dry cleaners, like something else is probably wrong. Um, you're probably working too much anyway. But, um, you know, it's really important to think about benefits and creating an environment. I think really it's about creating an environment where people can do the best work of their lives and they feel supported by the company and the company can help them be better versions of themselves, even outside of work. So something we do at Basecamp, for example, is, is pay for continuing education beyond your trade. So if you're a designer, maybe companies will send you to a conference or a design conference or whatever. But like, if you want to learn how to fly a plane or you want to learn how to be a better cook, or you want to learn how to you know throw pots on a, on a wheel, or you want to paint or whatever, like we'll pay for those classes for you too that have nothing to do with your career they just are supportive of you as an individual because we want you to be able to do things and be a, a more interesting person and, and pursue things and, you know, get a little bit of help from a company that you, you dedicate your day to. Um, so I think that's, to me, what's really interesting about HR. And of course, there's also the other side, which is, which is mental health and helping people through problems and helping people who are struggling with things and really being supportive there and not making anyone feel like they can't go talk to somebody if they need help. Uh, or feel ashamed of that. I mean, that's a whole nother part of it, which is really important. Um, but uh, I think just the human part, uh, it, be a resource for humans rather than, you know, human resource. I mean, sometimes it's like human resources and it, it kind of comes off as a bit of a technical term. Um, but it's like, if it was called, you know, resources for humans or, you know, that, that might, that might help actually. You know, I, I like that. I think the the field is having a bit of a, an existential crisis between, you know, HR, people ops, uh, human capital, which is the worst in my view. But um, yeah, yeah, that uh, that I definitely I appreciate that perspective. Sure. Uh, well, Jason, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm glad that uh, you're able to come in and share some of your journey building Basecamp, and uh, and really appreciate you making time to share with the listeners. Well, thanks for inviting me on. This is really interesting. I don't even though I talk about these topics, I, I rarely get to talk about them for a half hour with somebody specifically. So I, I really appreciate you bringing me on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 21st Century HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this or read stories from the 21st Century HR Fast Company series, go to 21stCenturyHR.com. And if you want to make your podcast just a little more awesome, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform your ears desire. You'll find all the subscribe links on the website. And if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor and share it with your peers, your network, your boss, and your CEO. Help me get the podcast into the ears of anyone who wants to know what HR and recruiting looks like when done really well. They'll thank you for it, and so will I. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next episode.